Welcome back to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne, and on today's podcast, I speak with photographer David Hume Kinnerly. David Hume Kinnerly is a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer for his images documenting the Vietnam and Cambodia wars, refugees escaping East Pakistan to India, and his famous photos of the Ali vs. Frazier fight titled The Fight of the Century that took place at Madison Square Garden. David worked as the official White House photographer for President Gerald R. Ford, where he had unrestricted access to the president on a daily basis. In this interview, I speak to David about his early days working for newspapers in the Pacific Northwest, his friendship with photographer Ansel Adams, who we photographed for the cover of Time magazine, and I also speak to David about his approach to covering U.S. politics for nearly 50 years for some of the top publications in the business. David is someone who has documented some of the most important moments in world history, so I was really excited to get a chance to speak with him about his amazing career. I hope you enjoy, and thanks so much for listening. All right, well, David Hume Kinnerly, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, really excited to talk to you. Uh, been following your work for years, a uh, big fan. Um, and as we speak right now, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is lying in state. Um, who I know you've had some experience photographing. Um, so I was just kind of curious, maybe you could talk a little bit about your experience photographing her, because I think you photographed her a couple times. <clears throat> well, yeah, more, you know, quite a few times, but one, once uh, in her chambers where, uh, uh, there you go. Um, this was in 2002, I believe. Uh, yep, says it right in the caption. Hey, nothing like my Instagram feed, right? <laughs> uh, David Hume Kennerly, all one word. Um, she was great. I, you know, she was kind of used to having uh, publicity, and she wasn't too nervous. But what, what I liked about this photograph was the uh, she was such a diminutive person, mm-hmm. and so there she is in that big office, and you know, her her, her feet are barely on the ground. Kind of reminded me of photographing Deng Xiaoping a little bit in 1975, and Deng Xiaoping and she probably would see eye to eye. I don't know how big Ruth was or how tall, but uh, Deng Xiaoping was like around five something, stretching it. <clears throat> but um, yeah, this is the same session. I put up some contact sheets. But I, you know, I get along well with people. Uh, I think it's one of the secrets of the business. Uh, my dad was a traveling salesman. Mm. I used to go around with him, watching him sell stuff to people that they either weren't sure they wanted or didn't want, but they ended up buying it anyway. And I really learned how to engage with people, and I think that's a, an important thing for photographers. Because uh, what what did you photograph? Ruth I'm a good for? photographer, but I'm not. I mean, there are a lot of better ones, but you've got to get in the room with your subjects. Yeah, for sure. Because what did you photograph? What were these photos used for? And uh, had you photographed any Supreme Court justices prior to this? Because like Supreme Court justices, there's such a a lot of times you don't hear a ton about these people. So I would imagine it was a pretty interesting experience getting the opportunity to go into one of their chambers. Yeah, I've actually been in there quite a few times. I got to know Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the uh, first woman uh, to go on the U.S. Supreme Court. But I'd photographed uh, 
uh, over the years, several justices, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist in his chamber. And, uh, you know, again, these are people to me, I, I don't look at anyone as a title, but as a, as a human being. Yeah. And um, uh, sometimes you get a little intimidated, but w where I get most anxious is when I don't think I'm going to get a photo or, or an appointment with somebody that I want to get uh, yeah. photographs of. But I, most people are easy to deal with, uh, particularly politicians, because they, they understand the game. And um, uh, it's one reason I, I, I've always preferred doing that to like movie stars who are, they, you know, they depend on how they look and all that. I, I totally get it. I mean, I'm not even yeah. critical. It's just that uh, um, politicians are more interesting to me. I mean, they're not reading somebody else's lines. They're, they're, they're making up their own book in their own play, in their own screenplay. And so, uh, um, and they're the ones making the world go around, the ones starting the wars and ending them. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. It's all about history for me. I, I've been in it from the get-go for the history, and I've had a good ride. Yeah, I was reading before this interview, I, you on your on your website, when you pull it up, it's a whole little thing about John McCain. And one of the things I found interesting was how your experience photographing him, like uh, I think you said in the little blog excerpt, excerpt on your site, uh, you walked into his office and he was in the middle of like yelling at someone on the phone, but he still saw you and he's like, come on in. And he kind of just gave you that access well, <laughs> and... He was great. I mean, for one thing, I, I, I didn't just like waltz in there after having not known him to some degree. And uh, <clears throat> I covered his 2000 campaign pretty much from start to finish. Uh, and um, But he was a feisty, cantankerous guy. In my Vietnam uh, period, I think, impressed him to the degree that I was been shot at. And of course he got shot down and, uh, yeah. and he was, uh, he was just like a real person. I, I liked him. I respected the hell out of him. Um, and I've never been particularly political. I, uh, even though I worked for a Republican president, uh, in fact, he, I've been working for president Ford for maybe two or three months and we were waiting for somebody to come in the oval office. And he said, you know, I've never asked you, are you a Republican or a Democrat? That he said, don't answer that. <laughs> I mean, he didn't know, he didn't care, you know, that, that which is really where I, that's where I live. But um, uh, McCain was a unique guy and uh, uh, very approachable. He liked people, he loved the press. I mean, he, he got beaten up a little bit, but uh, uh, on his 2000 campaign, the press people would sit in the back of the bus with him and it was like a nonstop press conference for him. He would talk to anybody anytime. And president Ford was kind of like that. I mean, not, not as much access just from the fact when he was president, of course, but, uh, uh, he wasn't afraid of the press. Uh, didn't like what they wrote about him, uh, a lot, but that wasn't an issue for him. He understood, the first amendment and what their job was. And, uh, he wasn't afraid to get tough questions. And, uh, when you look at what's going on today, it's just a nonstop attack on the press, the first amendment. Uh, and it, it's, uh, uh, disturbing to me and upsetting really. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's crazy. And like you said, you, you politics wasn't always like your thing. But like when you kind of started photography, what was kind of your first interest? Because I think looking at everything you've accomplished with everything, all the politics you cover, obviously, that's not all you cover. But a lot of people know you from that stuff. But I guess from the early days, like how do you kind of get into photography and what was kind of your interest early on? Well, early on, <clears throat> I had the uh, interests were uh, girls and getting out of class. <laughs> and, and so and, uh, being a photographer kind of like uh, fit all of that. Uh, like the cheerleaders, you know, taking pictures of them and then they'd want to have prints later so that established a relationship. And, um, but as a kid, I, I was excited about news and what was going on and, uh, uh, Recently, there was a anniversary of 1959. There was a, a warehouse. I'm from a little lumber town in uh, Oregon, Roseburg, yeah. Oregon. And there was a fire, and this guy had parked his dynamite truck next to it. It had ammonium nitrate and dynamite, and it, and, uh, it, it blew up. And... Uh, the Beirut thing was was certainly way bigger, but it brought that whole thing to mind. But I was 12 years old, and I, we we're only about five blocks from the building supply place. Kind of our house was sort of up on a hill, and it was like 1:30 in the morning, and these big fire sirens go off because it calls in the volunteer firemen, and uh, and I could see the place burning, and I I had these French windows, thank God, because they were open. It was a hot night, and uh, all of a sudden, there was this gigantic explosion. It looked like a, a nuclear bomb. It was so huge. It was like uh, tons of dynamite and ammonium nitrate. And it blew me all the way across the room. Holy and, I, and I went back and, to watch. It blew out every window in our house. It ended up, uh, killed like 15 people. The crater yes. was like 50 feet across. It blew up my the junior high school. I was going to be starting that fall. And but I wasn't really taking pictures then. And, um, but I, I remember seeing in a much less dramatic fashion, a, a Roseburg News Review photographer coming by and uh, it was some garage fire in our neighborhood and the fireman came and this, this guy walked through the police lines and that really stuck with me. And I thought, I'd like to do that. I don't have to fight the fire, but I could like take pictures of all this stuff. Yeah, up in and, the action. And I think in um, um, my last two years in high school, uh, we're at a, high, a place up near uh, uh, Portland, a place called West Lynn. And I convinced them that I should work on the newspaper and the annual. I convinced them I had a lot more experience than I did, even though I was a junior in high school. But that really got me into it. So I photographed like, everything from cheerleaders, certainly, but uh, football players, basketball, just things going on in the high school. My first published photo was in 1962 in a high school newspaper in uh, Roseburg, and I still have it. Oh, wow. And uh, so I've been doing it, really, since I was uh, like 15 years old, I guess. I kind of stacked that up. But I've always had a clear direction about history uh and my interest in politics came from um robert kennedy coming to portland oregon in 66 uh it was before he was running for president but um 
uh, we of my age all remember where we were when we heard that uh, John F. Kennedy was killed. And uh, I, it was such a shock. And uh, so here's his brother. I guess it was like uh, three years later, I was a young staff photographer for the Oregon Journal. And he came uh, to speak at a labor hall campaigning for Edith Green, who was one of the first, one of the few uh, women in Congress, actually. Uh, and I'll never forget it because it, it also informed how I treat other people and, uh, throughout the course of my career. But it, this room was packed. I couldn't get into the room. And mm -hmm. I saw a photographer standing on the periphery. And I, I, I knew he wasn't from Portland. It looked like he was traveling with Kennedy. I went over and I said, hey, you know, you look like you know what you're doing. I said, how do you get through these crowds? And he said, hang on to my coat, kid. And he just like sliced through the crowd. And not only that, but he said, here, stand up on this place and look at this angle and you'll get a great shot with the crowd and the senator and all that. And the photographer was Bill Epperidge of Life Wow. Wow. And uh, Bill, uh, that was uh, remarkable because he didn't have to do that. But you can see how panicked I was. And uh, But more important, what happened later that night was uh, following Kennedy and his little ragtag motorcade out to the airport. And it was like the DC-3 with his motors turning uh, on the tarmac. And Kennedy runs up the stairs and waves. And then Epridge went up right after him and goes into the plane. The door closes. It taxis out into the night. It was like that final scene of Casablanca, you know, where <laughs> Rick yeah. is on the runway watching his love take off. And, and it was at that moment, and I'm not kidding, that I real I wanted to be on that airplane, and I've never had. It was a profound uh, feeling that I had that um, I wanted to be with the circus. I wanted to see where Robert Kennedy was going or other people like him, and and, and I endeavored to do that. And that that was the big jolt for me. Was like you know like a lot of people growing up in their town. A lot of people want to get out of wherever they grew up. Was that kind of the same thing for you? Like were you kind of itching to get out of Oregon, or because a lot of photographers feel like they got to live in D.C. or New York or whatever these bigger cities are at? I think uh, I mean that's a really good question, but I, I think uh, um, getting out of Roseburg. Uh, was something I'd really thought about, but it was not, there's nothing I could do. I was a kid, but my my uh, my dad, my parents. I think it was middle of my junior year, which was kind of a peculiar time to leave the place you grew up all those years. Mm -hmm. But he got a job up outside Portland in Westland, and and um, he he told the family, and I had three younger sisters, and they were just beside themselves, like what we're going to leave and. I mean, I was like in the car a day ahead of time waiting to, to go. <laughs> I, like, I swear to God, I, I, could, I, I couldn't wait to get out of there. It was like I felt so confined because I knew that, for instance, like there were no black people in Roseburg. Black people were like a rumor. Yeah. It, it's a, that part of Oregon is very conservative. And Oregon, which I found out later on, used to be kind of like a whites-only state. It was very bizarre. And particularly that part. So I didn't have, there was no uh, um, diversity, no, no diversity. 
you know, like some Jewish friends and Catholics, you know, <laughs> that was about it. And so, yeah. but moved up to Westland. And uh, so, but Portland is a vibrant place. Uh, and, and to me, that was the big city. That was like going to Oz, really. I mean, that, 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 um, I had my travel experience was very limited. Uh, and so that was a big deal. And I remember in 62 going up to Seattle for the Seattle World's Fair because my dad had a booth there. He was selling some stuff. And, um, and that was fantastic. It, it all, it's almost like one of those uh, like Jurassic Park you know, where like uh, what's her, who, who's the star of that? Uh, but the, the only oh. way you ever remember her is like every yeah. every time she sees the dinosaur, it's always like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. shot. You know, like <laughs> your like, mouth is shit. open. You know, it's really <laughs> stupid. But anyway, yeah. uh, I was um, taken with that, and the, the and so my uh, dreams were big. They were big. There's no question about it. And and uh, getting out of Portland wasn't as uh, uh, compelling as getting out of Roseburg had been. Yeah. Yeah, because like, uh, I know you ended up going to work for the Oregonian amazing newspaper and some of your I don't know, it was pretty early on shots, you photographed like Miles Davis, Igor Stravinsky, uh, I think the Rolling Stones. And I yeah. That all when you're kind of at the Oregonian newspaper. Well, um, actually the Oregon, it was the Oregon Journal. Got it. Well, and I was 19. I, so, I mean, I always get asked about college and, and uh, uh so I went to Portland State, then college, for about a half hour because I got a job on the, uh, on the Oregon Journal as a uh, fill-in for one of the guys that was going off to uh, six months active duty in the military. And this was 66, and it was very clear that that job was only going to be until he came back. Yeah. And so he came back, and... Um, Oh, I photographed all those people. You mentioned Mick Jagger when he was 23 years old. That was their first tour of America. But I got called into the publisher's office, and I just figured, well, I, I mean, the publisher was like a godlike figure that you never saw. I mean, he was off in some corner office, and he wanted to see me. And I just figured he's going to say, you know, nice having you here, and adios. And, yeah. um he had this stack of newspapers of, with pictures in it that I'd taken. And uh, uh, he looked to him, he said, Hey kid, you did a pretty good job. And he showed one that particularly got him was a, it was like a, uh, like a burned, a deer that was still alive had been burned in a forest fire yeah. and it had been used. It was on the front page. It made a huge reaction and it was then used for a, a fire prevention kind of uh, campaign by the, uh, the park service. And, he said, well, you've done such a good job. I want to offer you a full-time position. And uh, I was like, oh, my God. I mean, this is, like, unbelievable. And by the way, it's the last time that was the last time I ever applied for a job. I mean, uh, uh, because I then I, I was approached for almost everything else I did. But the guy's name was Bill Knight. He was Phil Knight's dad. Oh, wow. And... I had the opportunity to tell Phil Knight this story uh, like two years ago. And, uh, and Phil uh, said, uh, wow. He said, my dad never did that for me. He, he said, in fact, I asked him if I get a job on the Oregon Journal and he wouldn't do it. He said, I can't hire my kid here. And <laughs> yeah. so I went and got a job on the Oregonian. 
yeah. and, uh, uh, and I was a sports writer and all that. And uh, so it was pretty amusing. But um, and as I told him, uh, when he said his dad wouldn't hire him, I said, yeah, I really screwed up your career. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that, I, I then went in the uh, military for six months active duty came out and I, that's when I got the Oregonian job. And shortly thereafter, I was offered a job to work at UPI in Los Angeles. When you go from, from the Oregon Journal to the Oregonian, was there a big difference in this, how the newspaper operated? Like, what do you kind of remember about working at a newspaper back then? Was there like a lot of photographers? Was it kind of like a competitive environment? Like, what do you kind of remember about well, that? Well, did, did you ever see the play, the front page in the movie? No, I can't. You got to look at it. It's, a, it's one of the great all-time newspaper movies, The Front Page. And uh, I think Cary Grant's in that one. I can't remember, but it's, an old, but it's great. And it's about newspaper in the old style. This is, so the Oregonian and the Oregon Journal were both in the same building. Mm. And uh, uh, no, there wasn't much difference. The Oregonian was bigger. The Journal was an afternoon newspaper. But they had the, 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 the big newsroom. And I really kicked myself in retrospect for not doing more photos of that because it was really the last of the good old days, the bullpen, the editors, the guys with the green visors, uh, people yelling at each other uh, and, and getting, you know, and these crusty old photographers, I was like the youngest guy by far. Uh, and, and anytime there'd be some like a shootout or something. Oh, let's send Kennerly. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't so, yeah sure. You know, I'll take it. Yeah, because like how many photographers were on staff like when you were at the Oregonian and what was kind of like your, how, how did well, it come Oregonian, The Oregonian probably had, uh, I can't remember, it had to be a dozen to 15, you know. So, yeah, a good amount of photographers. There were a lot, yeah. And, uh, but a, a couple of them were like my heroes. So, I mean, they, they, they like, um, uh, David Falconer was one, and then uh, uh, Pete Corbellis was another one. And uh, but these are guys that were that I had looked up to because I wasn't seen. I, I I must say I didn't. A lot of people said, "Well, it was Life and Look Magazine," but really for me it was the local newspaper photographers. That's where I was seeing most of the work, and occasionally I would see a Life and all that. But yeah. I didn't necessarily aspire to that. I like. And, and when I got the UPI job and moved to Los Angeles, and I was uh, 21, and um, uh, that was great. I mean, I'm essentially a wire service photographer at heart. I mean, a wire service photographer is like a utility outfielder. I mean, you can play any position, and you'd have to cover all these different stories, and you'd have to get the stuff out like right then and there, a deadline every minute. Uh, and really, that business hasn't changed that much in terms of uh, being yeah, competitive. Yeah, because how does that work? Like, obviously, when you're a newspaper photographer, you're on staff, and they're giving you assignments. And then, like you said, you went to UPI, uh, wire service. Um, personally, I've never worked for a wire service. But, like, how, how does that kind of work exactly when you're working for, like, UPI, I guess? Well, the United Press International and AP were, at that time, the main competitors. Uh, AP was a member-owned operation. It, it still is. I think they all the whoever the their clients are, they they pay their share of whatever it is. Uh, UPI was a for-profit uh, kind of a thing, but mainly 
it's like covering everything, big on sports. So I, I, I became a good sports photographer. Uh, everything from car wrecks to plane crashes to politics to uh, the, the, everything. I mean, newspapers are like that too, but this, you were doing more assignments or less photographers doing it. And I was covering the LA area. And okay. so, uh, uh, but it was great experience for me. And, and it was then that I actually did get on the airplane. They sent me over to join the Robert Kennedy campaign in New Mexico. And uh, uh, I, I, went up to the campaign people. I'm Dave Kennerly with UPI. I mean, I was 21, but I still look like I was 18 years old. And, and I'm supposed to get on the plane and go with you to over to Arizona. And I said, you're not going to get on the plane. And I said, what do you mean? He said, no, I mean, it's like, uh, we, we don't believe you, you know, you're like too young to be doing this. And so I got, for one thing, I always said I got scared because I, I couldn't call back over and say I couldn't get on the airplane, you know. And yeah, there's no, this is so I, pre, I kinda, pre cell phones and email. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> this is 1968. I know, I know. That's why people got to remember ago. when they're listen, listening to this. <laughs> I can't believe. Anyway, so I just basically went ape shit, you know. And I said, I'm with UPI and I'm supposed to be here and I've got this assignment. And, and the one guy says, Okay, anybody talks like that's got to be in the news business, right? <laughs> so, so they let me on the plane, and it was uh, th this is thrilling. But I was like so panicked that I wasn't going to happen. And I'm sitting there. Robert Kennedy came on the plane uh, after his stop, and uh, and he walked by. And he turned around because he, he hadn't seen me. He said, "Hi, uh, uh, Bob Kennedy," uh, um, and he said who are you and i told him and he said well how's everything going wow and i said well not very well your staff wasn't gonna let me on the plane <laughs> and so he goes really i said yeah i mean they thought i was like you know too young or something and yeah he said well don't worry about it and <laughs> so we got to the next stop and all of a sudden they're like two eights oh mr kennerly is there anything we can do for you he must have oh, kicked yeah. their ass you can know but it was uh, uh it was cool it was cool i mean uh, I think the, the thing about uh, this business, of, in a way, you have so many different skills you have to employ. Uh, you have to be a producer. You have to be a logistician to get your, at that time, your film back. Uh, you have to sell your way into a situation. Uh, you got to be a BS artist, uh, certainly, in, in that regard, to some degree. And, um, uh, but... It's it's the photography part of it. Really, it's just one element. Yeah, yeah. and there's just all these other things. And I I learned how to do it. Yeah, because like, did you always have that confidence? And like, like you said, like you had to like really push yourself to get onto that plane. And like, have you always just kind of had that personality of like? Because I would imagine, like you're saying, like as a photographer, you're just a hired gun, and you got to make stuff happen. And it's just like dealing with personalities. Like, did you always kind of have that confidence growing up, or? You feel like it's something you kind of got better at over time. I know. I think, I mean, uh, I don't want to get into some big shrink shows in here, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I still, uh, as a kid, I think I was kind of insecure, you know, but, and I think photography actually, because I got into it at an early age, knowing this is what I wanted to do, that uh, I think that really helped me out. Uh, and, and, and just 
knowing what's and I became I learned from all these other photographers like the ethics of the business and like uh, all that and like the the competitiveness of it and uh, in a way it's kind of like being a professional athlete because you're you're up against really good photographers all the time and, and you'll be out on the same job and if you get outshot all the time you're not going to have a job you know and so i i figured that out but i i you know it's funny um that was, that was a good question because uh uh flash forward just recently last couple of years i i did a uh uh, workshop helping like wounded Marines out down at Camp Pendleton and um, the, uh, it's Harrison Ford's brother Terrence uh, has been running this program uh, like a workshop with photography and his contention for, for these uh, wounded uh, people disabled or, or having you know PTSD and all mm -hmm. the attendant trouble they get but the uh, um, he, it was clear to me that photography uh, really helped a lot of these people out. It, it allowed them to uh, uh, express themselves in a way that they couldn't do it, even talking or maybe writing or whatever. And, and I think I was kind of like, certainly not having gone through that trauma. I mean, I did go through that kind of trauma, but uh, I didn't fortunately have that kind of, uh, uh, wasn't affected badly by it but the it was clear that this really did help them out and when i because that caused me to think about my upbringing and everything else and and i, and I really related to that and I, I but i've always had a lot of confidence and, and you can't be uh, like a retiring figure in my end of the business i mean there are just tons of yeah. different you talk to photographers in all sorts of fields you know and, oh, yeah we're all different, but uh, the mission is pretty much the same. Whatever you're trying to do as a news guy, uh, wire guy, um, you know, it was a little more strenuous on the uh, the day-to-day -day requirements of photographing news because it could be dangerous or it could be like anxiety-producing or whatever. Yeah, definitely in tight stress situations and like. What do you remember about, because we talked about when we talked the other day a little bit about how uh, nowadays, like if you're covering a campaign or politics, they kind of just got all the press pool like in one little marked off spot. But like, what do you remember about like those days back then, like when you're, when you're shooting uh, uh, Robert F. Kennedy and stuff like that, like uh, was there as, as much red tape or was it were photographers and media more free to kind of like just approach people and kind of do their thing? Like what's kind of the biggest difference now? Yeah, that's a, uh, well, I mean, the closer you get to the candidacy of either the party, yeah. the more restrictive it becomes. You know, all of a sudden there's the plane, there's the all this and that. But even to this day, I mean, one of the reasons I like covering the uh, uh, New Hampshire uh, primaries is because the everybody's still out there on their own. You know, they're more accessible. I mean, in a way, that process has never changed that much. And they're all, because it's early, there's no uh, certain candidate. Mm -hmm. And unless they were already a, a federal protectee, like a VP, like uh, 
uh, Gore was at the time or something like that, then it'd be, it's a more formal situation because you have the Secret Service to deal with, and uh, uh, which has always been fine. I mean, the service, uh, I've always gotten along with pretty well. Mm -hmm. Whoops, did I hit something? Oh, Hold you're on. good. Yeah, I almost like eradicated our talk here. Uh, no, you're um, good. So, uh, uh, but no, it was pretty free form. And, and of course, Robert Kennedy was assassinated because he only had the one uh, bodyguard with him. So when he went into the kitchen at the Ambassador Hotel, uh, the guy with the gun was there. There was nothing to prevent it. Mm -hmm. And even these days, I mean, that could happen early on in a situation. In a way, uh, that was, uh, I guess, because his brother was shot and everything, I probably, I, I mean, you could second guess that all day long. But uh, generally, it's pretty easy going until somebody gets closer in. With John McCain in his campaign, where I was on the bus with him. I mean, you, everything was sitting on his lap. I mean, he just allowed <laughs> access. Now, a lot of people don't. They want to have their staff keep you at a distance. And the Bernie Sanders guys were kind of jerks about it, actually, as I recall. Yeah. yeah and, uh, uh, you know, he, he's a cantankerous guy, too, but not in a good way. But, mm -hmm. but the... Uh, um, but now, I mean, what's happened now because of the virus and all that yeah. is um, the campaign came to basically a, a dead stop after New Hampshire in February, and I was uh, there. And I had good pictures of Biden, and it was a Trump rally I did, and uh, hearing the same bullshit from him about, uh, you know, the fake news and the media and waving his finger and keeping you back in the press area where you were referring to that. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, uh, they're just, uh, everything is clamped down because of the virus. And so everything is like pools for this and that. And I understand it, but unless you're working for the New York Times or AP or Reuters or, you know, a wire right. service, yeah, uh, it's pretty hard to cover. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to make a good photograph. You can't be there. Um, and when you're working at UPI, um, cause I think you believe you started working in Los Angeles, but eventually I think I read you ended up going to Washington. Um, when you kind of went to Washington, what kind of stuff was this straight politics at that point? Cause I know eventually you ended up working for Gerald Ford. Um, how did that kind of, well, that was kind of a circuitous route. Uh, no, I, my, you would call him a mentor these days. We didn't think that way back then, but Dirk Halstead was the, head UPI photographer and he had, I worked with him in LA when he came out to cover Nixon after the convention in 68. And um, he recommended to the, the big shots in New York that they bring me back there. That was the world headquarters for UPI. It was in the, uh, <clears throat> in the daily news building. And I love being in New York and that was 69. So it was the year of the Mets. Oh, I yeah, covered the, the, the Miracle Mets. The Miracle Mets. And it was like I, I covered all the series games there in at Shea Stadium where they won. Tom Seaver was a winning pitcher and uh, <clears throat> who recently died. Yeah. And um, so they were, I mean, at that point I was like 23 years old. And so they asked me to move to Washington 
they liked what I was doing and they thought they could shake things up a little bit in DC. I mean, I don't know why they thought it needed it, but they had good, they're all good photographers down there. And um, so I went down and, and got put on the White House rotation, which is the, they had like five photographers. So every month it's your turn on the White House. So wherever the president of the United States goes at that point, it was Richard Nixon you'd go with him. So I had my first ride on Air Force One when I was uh, 23 years old. <clears throat> and it, yeah, that's exciting stuff. I mean, I didn't take it for granted. I, yeah. I, I don't take anything for granted. Even now, I mean, my attitude is really hasn't changed that much. Uh, uh, somebody said I, I still have the mind of an 18-year-old. I, I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> That's, that's I figured out, was he like dissing me or what? <laughs> that's why I, I mean, like we were talking the other day and I was like, I really appreciate this. You, you can just look at your Instagram, your website, and you still just have like an incredible enthusiasm for what you're doing. And you've been at it for a long time. So it's just like really inspiring to hear people that are like, I think you're in your 70s now and you're still just like sh out there shooting assignments and getting after it. Yeah. And I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, I mean, there's no reason to stop, really. Mm -hmm. Somebody asked me what my hobby was, and I said it's uh, photographing birds. <laughs> I mean, I like to, <laughs> I like to shoot bird pictures because it's hard. Yeah, and it's fun. I mean, the results are terrific. And by the way, I mean, I don't know if you talk about product at all, but uh, 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 Canon just came out with this uh, R5 camera. Yeah, yeah, which I've heard is, about it. I have. I have two of them. I, I just got it. And I, I kind of went to mirrorless when um, uh, HBO was uh, it was the final episode of Veep. And mm -hmm. Julia uh, 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 Louis-Dreyfus and David Mandela, who was a producer, asked if I would photograph it for them because they had both been on Seinfeld. I did the final episode of Seinfeld wow. in 98 as a Newsweek assignment. It was fun. And, uh, but I hate using blimps, but they had just come out with the, the EOS R. Um, is that right? Yeah, the, uh, uh, it, and it has a, a silent function. And I think they were a little behind Sony and maybe Fuji and the mirrorless mm -hmm. stuff because I hadn't tried them. But boy, they were great. And then the new ones came out. But the point is, they have these incredible lenses. There's, the new one is a 100 to 500 millimeter yeah. lens. It's unbelievable. And they then there's another one I bought, and it's a preset F11 800 millimeter. Yeah. And it's just like light. I mean, you could like. Uh, yeah, it is crazy. The camera's gotten a lot smaller. I, I haven't tried that camera out. I, I'm, I'm using the Canon 5D Mark IV. This is what's filming the video. And. Uh, yeah, I love them, but it's like the new R system. You got to buy a whole new set of lenses because it's a whole different mount. That's the only problem with well, it. Well, yeah, no, no, you could get an adapter. Yeah, you can get. Yeah, you I can mean, get they have it. an adapter, but quite frankly, those lenses are so superior. There's a fifty-one point two lens. Oh my god! Mm -hmm. I mean, it just blows your mind. It, yeah. stuff, and I'm not like a a, a techie person. I, I don't, and also I don't sit around and talk about no. like cameras that much, but these are my tools, you know, and it, all I want, I mean, as you well know, from the film days, and I started out with Nikon Fs and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's a F-stop and a, and a shutter speed. I mean, essentially that's it. And now you've got like, it's like 
Star Trek, you open the back of the damn thing. You can be you can be like five stops under or over and bring oh, it all back in. Man. It's crazy. But I guess for what you do, a lot of situations when you're shooting politics or even other situations, having the silence thing it can help you tremendously. Like especially like in the. Not systems. really. I really don't use it that much. I mean, but when I was the chief White House photographer, um, I used Leicas mm-hmm. uh, and some Nikons. I mean, I switched to Canon in 1995 and I, that's all I use uh, now and the iPhone of course, but uh, uh, the, uh, the Leica was quiet. I mean, in, in, in the Oval Office and everything, it was really better to use and the quality was good and all that. So I had a couple Leicas and then the lo- longer lenses, I'd still car- take the, or use the, the Nikon with it. In 95, I switched over to uh, Canon film cameras. And then when digital got better, I, I, I made that transition. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I guess to go back, like we kind of touched on a little bit, like you, your first trip was with uh, Nixon, um, kind of photographing him, him a little bit. Um, what do you kind of remember about that guy? Because uh, doing a little research, his photographer, I believe, Ollie Atkins. Ollie um, Atkins. I didn't sound like Nixon was very nice to him uh, as a photographer. Well, there, you know, I give talks uh, frequently, and there's a clip I found in the Nixon Library, and it was because um, uh, I, I also produce documentaries and stuff like that. But uh, I worked with the uh, Noday brothers. <clears throat> the guys, the French brothers who did the 9-11 video won the Emmy for it. the most extraordinary yep. film ever. Anyway, we did a, um, uh, a documentary on White House Chiefs of Staff. It was a four-hour Discovery Channel thing. So I went around to all the libraries, and, and uh, even though I was a producer, I, I, that was something I wanted to do. And pulled out pictures of chiefs of staff, you know, with LBJ, with all uh, Yokomoto. Yochi Okamoto was the uh, first civilian White House photographer. And then Ollie, and um, I found this video clip of uh, Nixon talking to Ollie, he wants to take a picture the night before he resigns as president, but it's like, I'm going to be on live TV and he's going to announce it at noon tomorrow, I'll be leaving, yeah. you know. Yeah, and he's like, it's but only it going to be. He's, he's like, it's only going to be the network or whatever the people from. Right, the right. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, it's unbelievable, and, and I still every time I see it, I go, "Poor Ollie, man, I feel bad for this guy." And so uh, it's Nixon saying, "You know, well, the press had their picture, and you had yours, and blah blah blah." And this is the guy I'd worked for him for like six years and during the campaign, and yeah. uh, you know, but just had very little access to Nixon. And, and, um, and so that, that was right before it went on live TV. So they have Nixon sitting behind the desk talking. That's what the video is. But the one thing I knew uh, was I wasn't sure Ford was going to ask me to be his photographer. I suspected he was. But I didn't want to be in a situation where I was not going to have any access to uh, – yeah, uh, the president and the night. So Nixon leaves at noon on August 9th, 1974. And one of the kids, one of the Ford kids, and I'd gotten to know them all because I was covering Ford as vice president for Time magazine. 
because of John Derniak. Now that's something that would be very unlikely to happen these days. Uh, but um, they, I just got to know the family, the Fords uh, really well. And they said, uh, mom and dad want you to come over to the house tonight. So they, they didn't move into the White House for uh, 10 days. You know, all the Nixon stuff was there. It was a quick but peaceful transition. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, they, so the Fords lived in this little, uh, uh, I still remember the address. It was like uh, 914. Uh, oh, no, I don't remember. Sorry. <laughs> I thought I did. Right. I've been over there. Oh, it's been 45 years, you know. But um, uh, Crown View Drive, there it is. And so um, it was a split level, not a fancy house. I mean, they never really had any money. And so there were a few friends and family there. It wasn't like a big celebration. I mean, it was kind of a serious day. You know, the president resigns the first time in history. And here's Ford and President Ford. And he, he said, he, one point during the night, evening, he said, why, I want you to stay after everybody else goes. I want to talk to you. And of course, I figure he's going to offer me the job. Yep. So we go into the living room and we sit down on the couch and he's smoking his pipe. And, you know, I'm like 27 years old. And no matter what, till the day I die, I'm still a kid from Roseburg, Oregon. I still grew up in a small town, no yeah. political influence. I mean, and I'm sitting there with the president of the United States, even though I knew the guy. And all I could think is like, why isn't Henry Kissinger here? <laughs> you know, I mean, this, is, this is totally yeah. bizarre for me. It's yeah, it's like, don't you, don't you have more important stuff to be doing? <laughs> but, but, you know, it was clear he wanted me to work for him. And so he asked me the question. He said, uh, how would you feel? Uh, I'm paraphrasing again, but it was essentially this. I mean, how would you feel about coming to work for me as my uh, White House photographer? And I thought about it. And the main thing I thought about was I didn't want to do it and become like another Ollie Atkins. So yep. I looked him right in the eye and I said, uh, I would, I would love to, but only if I reported directly to you and I had total access to everything that was going on in the white house. Mm -hmm. And he stopped smoking his pipe and, <laughs> and I thought, well, there we go. And, uh, I'm going to have to call my parents and say, well, the president offered me this job and I told him to shove it. Um, <laughs> and he started laughing that he said, you don't want Air Force One on the weekends. <laughs> so, and so, but the other thing that happened though was uh, um, uh, he, he said, look, um, I'm, I'll talk to Al because Ollie was a friend of his. And he said, Ollie's a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just drop this on him. I want to talk to Al Haig, who was the chief of staff, and uh, uh, we'll work it out. And so um, the other that later that evening, I don't tell this story uh, 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 much. Um, so he wanted to uh, watch the replay of the news. So it must have been around ten o'clock because that's when the local news came on in Washington D.C. He said, you know, I didn't see my swearing in and all that today. Let's watch it on TV. I said, oh, wow. So you're the sitting in his. That's amazing. So he's the president of the United States. He, he's not living in the White House. He's just in his normal oh, house. You're over there on Cranview Drive. And, wow. and you're just sitting there and you're just sitting there with them watching the replay. Yes. <laughs> and you know what? It was not for me. That wasn't that unusual with them because I I'd really gotten to know him pretty well. I mean, it's a long it was a, a good relationship. And, and so. 
and I think Susan Ford was there and Mrs. Ford was there. And um, I think Steve Ford was, uh, that's it. That's the only mm -hmm. people in the house and then the secret service obviously outside. But um, we went into the den and he turns the TV on. It's not working. And it's like, it's a little bit, this house is not big. Yeah. And he goes, oh, we only got one. Let's go upstairs and watch it upstairs in their bedroom. <laughs> so this is Ford and Susan and me and Steve. And we're, we watch him get sworn in. Like, uh, I, I, and I'm not, I didn't even take pictures of it. You know, it was just like, this is so crazy personal. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. But, it, but the, 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 what happened at the end of that, I said, well, look, um, you know, I better be going. I mean, you got to get up in the morning and be president <laughs> like the first time he goes. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and uh, he took my hand with both of his. He said, let me ask you something. He said, well, if you come to work for me, will that be a bad thing with your friends or colleagues uh, after everything that's happened with Nixon? And, I man, I was taken aback by that. I mean, the fact that he would even say something like that, that – which is reflects very much who he is. But he said, um, I said, no, I said, you, you know, the photographers, they all really like you. You know, every one of them by name, they're going to be happy to have me in the white house yeah. because I'm an advocate for them. I, I want to help them. You know, I'm sure they'll want to come in and take pictures, not in a big group. And uh, I want to be there for them and, uh, and do my job. And he goes, good, good, good. Well, I'll see you tomorrow and I'll let you know what happens with Al. Flash forward, I'm sitting in the Time Magazine office the next day in the mail room. And the operator, as well as deals with the intercom, the operator gets it. She's, uh, David, call the uh, operator. And, and I called her and she said, David, the President of the United States wants to talk to you. And I said, well, tell him to call back. I'm, I'm busy. And, no. And she goes, he's on the phone. <laughs> he just called over. Is Dave Kennerly there? You know, yeah. and, uh, and so uh, I got on with him and he said, okay, we're all clear. Uh, do you still want the job? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'd be, uh, he said, well, you better get over here right now. You've already wasted half a day of the taxpayer's money. And so <laughs> This office was like right across Lafayette Square from the White House. And I walked out the door, went into the White House and started a new chapter of my life. So it sounded like he had like a pretty good sense of humor. Like he was. He did. Yeah. 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 He, he also, by the way, uh, I just had a, a very large exhibition at the Ford Library. Uh, mm -hmm. CBS Sunday Morning did a piece on me a few weeks ago at the Ford Library. Uh, it was a, a giant show, and yeah. uh, and uh, Jim Axelrod, the correspondent, said, well, what do you want people to get out of this show? We were walking around and looking at it, and uh, I said, I want people to, when they come out of here, to to know who President Ford was. That, that's really important to me, and I don't even make comparisons with him and the president guy. I mean, it's uh, there's no comparison. No. The, like, Ford, and you know, I mean, you could dump on this guy all day long, and I've uh, done my fair share. But but the the fact is, Ford, uh, in a genuine sense, was uh, you know in World War II, he was uh, uh, went to Yale Law School. He was an incredibly smart guy. But first and foremost, he had a big heart. He didn't harbor racism. 
And because if you listen to some of the Nixon tapes, you hear him talking about certain people, you know, yeah. uh, and and uh, he just treated everybody the same. I mean, and that's not I, I, I don't make this up. I mean, I was with that guy almost every day, seven days a week for two and a half years. I traveled to every country with him and uh, went through the ups and downs and uh, really kind of became part of the family, but with my professional uh, uh, edge, of course. And, um, but I, I, I learned so much from him about how you can disagree without being disagreeable. He and Tip O'Neill, uh, who was a became Speaker of the House, but who was the majority uh, leader in the House, would kick each other during, around during the week politically and then play golf on the weekends. And, and uh, he, uh, they liked each other. You know, it's not all the stuff that's going on now where people are just like, you're either there or you're or, here, yeah. you know, and, and it's not the way it was. Yeah. It, and do you feel like a, a part of the reason you got the access you did is he, it seemed like he wanted full transparency after everything that happened with Nixon. Do you feel like that was kind of part of the situation why he, he gave people all that gave you the access, I guess? You know, that <clears throat> it's a really good question, but it was never really framed that way. Mm -hmm. And I think people have written about that and said that was part of it. Yeah. You know, the thing I, I the, President Ford was a really shrewd guy, although he didn't play one on TV. You know, I mean, he, he, he was tough when he had to be tough. And he was politically really sharp. And, of course, having been in the minority party almost his whole career from 1948, mm -hmm. <clears throat> from 1948 when he went into the House and then, you know, became president, but uh, VP then president, I mean, he knew how to play politics, but he played it with a uh, with a soft glove, not a lot of not a cudgel. Yeah. And so, whether he felt that this was something about having me there and you know putting pictures out and all that, it may have crossed his mind, but I don't think it was the reason. The real reason was that we got along. Yeah. He liked me. He liked my irreverent sense of humor. He knew. I wasn't looking to get another job that I wasn't like trying to yeah, cut yeah. people down. I mean, I was really being a white house photographer. If you do it right, is like a, like a, a, a tiring, difficult job. I mean, you're in there for everything. And, and, uh, uh, but it was a personal relationship and, and, uh, I didn't hold back on difficult photos. Uh, the day he lost, uh, uh, other, times that were were tough yeah but I, right. think, I think he liked my honesty he appreciated my vietnam background yeah. i was a combat veteran in, a, in the sense of being in the you know mm -hmm. the press corps yeah and um um and he thought it was funny you know and and there were a lot of times where man he was down and i i would say you know something that might lighten it up and you know i was called the like, like the court jester sometimes. I wasn't like that. I mean, I, I was, because I was there all the time, I wasn't just brought in like mm -hmm. when he was down and wanted me to tell a few jokes. It wasn't like that. And, uh, but 
I really had an honest, straightforward relation, like from day one in the uh, talk about the job. I mean, that's yeah. what it was like. There's this uh, mutual respect. And one thing I was kind of curious about when you, you're a photojournalist and, you know, you're working there at the White House and obviously you're there every day. Um, do you think, is it a bad thing as a photojournalist to get too close to your subject or is it a, a good thing or how do you kind of view that aspect? Because you're there to do a job. Yeah, like yeah, it's said. a good, it's a good question. The, the <clears throat> well, for, um, you know, the access, of course, sprung out of, well, two things, my personality, what I did, mm -hmm. and I was working for Time Magazine, so Time was the best publication around and uh, uh, for news and, and uh, had a respect for photography, certainly. And, but I wasn't, <clears throat> I wasn't getting into the political stuff or anything, but I, I just, in a way, being a photographer, I guess, is different. I don't see where a reporter would have that kind of a, a relationship because in a way that would be more compromising. And I'm not, I'm not trying to justify this in any particular way. Yeah. Um, but it didn't, I, I think the important thing, it didn't get in the way of my journalistic integrity, how I looked at it. Now, when I became the White House photographer, I was no longer in the press corps. I was a yeah. White House employee. I mean, if you look what Pete Souza has done, I mean, Pete really uh, was, uh, became more political about it. I mean, he'll admit that. Uh, he is. Uh, uh, well, not till after, though, I don't think. Like, he didn't, when he was, he didn't well, uh, talk. Be, no, no, exactly. No, yeah. exactly. Afterwards, yeah. uh, but he yeah. kind of take it, took it as a personal Yep. crusade to troll Trump, really. Uh, he's done a hell of a good job at it, <laughs> <laughs> which I appreciate. He's, made, he's he, literally uh, made a career out of it. Yeah, <laughs> he big, time, big time, big yeah. <laughs> so, uh, But he had been a, a Chicago Tribune, but before that he had been a, a White House photographer for Ronald Reagan mm -hmm. uh, 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 period, worked with Mike Evans and, and uh, didn't become the chief photographer, but... Uh, and then back to the Tribune, and he was covering Obama, and he got to know Obama. So those roads are always very similar, usually uh, going into, like, working for a president. They have to be aware of you somehow, you know, and uh, whether Eric Draper had a good relationship with Bush, having covered him as an AP photographer, but he applied for the job. I mean, mm -hmm. Eric will tell you the story, and uh, and... My relationship was different. All the relationships are different, and and Ollie's was arm's length, but that's how it was with Nixon and everybody. Uh, Yo Okamoto is my hero and of the of the White House photography group, and was the yeah. best one ever. Yeah, uh, I saw. I, I watched a presentation you gave somewhere on YouTube, and I never uh, had seen this photo before. And you showed a photo of Yoshi that was incredible. It was a photo of uh, President Johnson in the hospital he's like was having some type of surgery and the gallbladder like, out the dude the president has the the oxygen mask on his face and then it's just a yoshi's there to snap and pictures and i was like wow and i think even it <laughs> even was unbelievable uh, well actually i came across those uh, uh oki is what we call them okay yeah uh so uh okay um had the most incredible access and in a way that was out of Johnson's vanity and about history, certainly and all that. 
Mm-hmm. Okamoto really took advantage of it. He did a brilliant job. Plus, Johnson was a great subject. Yeah. And uh, um, But when I was going through contact sheets and I saw this picture of Okamoto wearing like surgical stuff, right? Yeah. And so they turned over the contact sheet, the next page, and there's Johnson with an oxygen mask and like laying in bed and Hubert Humphrey's over him and yeah. LBJ, I mean, uh, 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 Hubert Humphrey is in there. And then he, I went, holy mackerel. I mean, I don't know that I would have taken those pictures of Ford, you know, but okay. Well, I'll, I'll pull a picture right now that you took uh, of Betty Ford when she was in the hospital, which was pretty powerful. Um, I think she was battling cancer. If you, yeah, yeah, that was at uh, the Bethesda Naval Hospital. She had just had a mastectomy, and uh, um, President Ford is back to us on the right. And Bob Hope, he brought Bob Hope and Bob Hope's buddy over, and yep. you can see Mrs. Ford's laughing. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, I had a lot of pictures over there, but I didn't go into the operating room. Yeah, <laughs> but, but it still, was just, like, I mean, Jesus, and so there's got to uh, yeah. be a limit here. And I think back then for Betty Ford, I, I, I guess uh, for reading reading this back then, like women, they didn't they wouldn't publicly talk about having breast cancer and things like that. No, so for for Betty Ford to kind of do this was pretty uh, powerful thing back then. Well, Betty Ford really was one of the most uh, one of the bravest people I ever knew, and uh, she was talking about that. I mean, you brought up a really good point. It was 1974. She was diagnosed with breast cancer, and and they were going to do the test and decide, you know. And then very shortly thereafter, it was all in the same visit. Yeah. Decided to do this mastectomy, which is removing a breast. And um, uh, so afterwards, she like staff people say, look, you don't need to go out and, and talk about this. And, uh, you know, you have your privacy. And she said, no, no, I'm going to, women need to know about this. And so that was very brave on her part, but also president Ford stood with her in doing that. And there are so many women that, uh, have credited Betty Ford with saving their life because of that. And we all think about her like the Betty Ford center, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Betty Ford Center for Drug and Alcohol Rehabilitation and all that. And believe me, I've had four of my friends go through that and she helped in the interventions and she was very hands-on with it. And uh, uh, she's more remembered for that. But yeah. she also was uh, the first big, bold move was breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was a powerful picture. And supporting the Equal Rights Amendment, which, by the way, has never passed. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, being that you, you, you worked in the White House so closely with the president and being around all these, like, government officials, world leaders, um, obviously you, you shot other administrations as well. Like, what do you think you learned about, like, government like getting the opportunity to be so up and close and personal with like when you're with Ford, you're seeing what these big decisions are happening day in and day out, like going through that experience. Do you feel like you learn anything just about government in general and how it operates or anything like that? Well, <clears throat> I mean, then I, well, I've covered every president since LBJ. Yep. So uh, that's like a ton. Mm-hmm. And um, some, I mean, LBJ was really just one 
I photographed him on one event, but it counts because I was there. In fact, he was at, at the dedication of a, at the National Portrait Gallery of a portrait of Harry Truman. And Harry Truman was the president uh, when I was born. So that, mm -hmm. that kind of counts. Except All right, well, add it to the list. I'm not going to pad my resume with Harry <laughs> Truman. But anyway, uh, I think um, uh, what well, then, I mean, the one I can really talk about because I was in there day in and day out was uh, the Ford administration, how things work, the integrity of the people. Mm -hmm. I mean, he didn't have one person go to jail or even get indicted or even uh, uh, he had a, a clean administration. I mean, granted, he was only there two and a half years, but the first two and a half years of the Trump administration, it was sort of like, uh, uh, you know, Fort Leavenworth Express, you know, and, uh, yeah. but I, it, that's not the point. But what I learned is that government can function really well. It depends on who's running the departments. I mean, the, the attorney general was Ed Levy, who was a law professor from Chicago. I was just talking about him the other day with Don Rumsfeld. I still remain friends, and he's from Chicago. And uh, uh, Rumsfeld is chief of staff, uh, then became secretary of defense, uh, replacing Jim Schlesinger, whom Ford didn't really care for. In fact, mm -hmm. This is a perfect example. This is a little off point about Ford's character. He he just never said bad stuff. About, he never demeaned anybody. Certainly, I mean, it's not like what you get as a daily diet uh, daily yeah. diet out of this guy. But um, he just would, you know, it was forget racist comments or any of that. I mean, that just wasn't in his head. But um, <laughs> Jim Schlesinger really annoyed him because Schlesinger was kind of a condescending person. He was like professorial. I personally liked him. Okay. But he would like say stuff to the president. Like he, he wasn't getting it, you know, and Ford was like, you know, really extremely sharp. And a guy had been do the budget. It's I mean, just all that, but it really annoyed him. And what, after one meeting, he looked at me and no one else was in the room. And he said, uh, you know, I really don't like him very much. And he goes, <laughs> Don't tell anybody I said that. That's like the most polite, the <laughs> politest, was, yes, the most polite way to be. Yeah. Oh my uh, God. You know, and so and then he fired him ultimately. And uh, I think with some satisfaction, I don't, I'm not totally mm -hmm. sure, but he yeah. um, uh, had good staff people, good uh, cabinet officers. Every, everybody, you know, was able to run their own department. He didn't micromanage it. I mean, he oversaw it and, uh, uh, the one of the few women ever to be in a, a, a cabinet up to that point. He had um, um, uh, uh, Carla Hills was, uh, uh, I think it was HUD, uh, and um, the first African-American to be in a Republican cabinet and only the second African-American ever, and it was Bill Coleman, sworn in at the White House by... Uh, uh, Thurgood Marshall and th those two guys were both civil rights icons yeah. and um, uh, it actually I think one of my best pictures of the White House is right before the swearing in uh, in uh, they were together in there it is I yeah. love this uh, shot and uh, and Thurgood Marshall is you know you look at um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg as a giant uh, and Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American uh, U.S. Supreme Court justice, was 
really an incredible human being. And Bill Coleman uh, was president of some of the big civil rights uh, uh, moments and as an attorney. And, and this photo, it was this when you were working for uh, Ford, or this was for when you were at UPI when you photographed this? Oh, this is a presidential photo. Yeah, Ford. Yeah, yeah. Ford. And it, uh, uh, it's on the caption here, but uh, oh, yeah. he worked with um, Marshall and uh, yeah. uh, uh, Coleman worked on the Brown v. Board of Education case, which was landmark, certainly. And... Uh, but this is huge. And you can see like Bill, uh, whom I got to know very well, mm -hmm. is so proud. You know, this is a huge moment. Monument, monumental moment. My eyes. Huh? Yeah. yeah, monumental moment in history. You know, yeah, but those are the kind of thing. It wasn't the actual swearing in. It's like he's, he's like Justice Marshall is, a, you know, putting like a justice is a uh, uh, robe. You know, mm -hmm. but so... I, I live for that kind of stuff. And those are, I'm the only one in the room to take them yeah. uh, in many, many cases. And yeah. the other significant part of my job really is the discretion. And um, it's not just a matter of having a top secret clearance. It's a matter of, uh, and it's not just me, it's any photographer who's given access. I mean, we are incredibly discreet people we want to be in the room. And if you tell like reporters about what you heard and all that, and, and uh, yeah. uh, you won't get in anymore. And, and so president Ford uh, one time said to me that my gravestone should read here lies the worst source in Washington. <laughs> and, and he's right. I mean, he's right about it. Even when I did my own first book shooter back in 79, uh, I, I, I it was there was no kiss and tell stuff there. I I had it. I could have written stuff that were personal things, and, I, and to this day I won't do it. Yeah, it's uh, professionalism. You're there. You're there to do a job. You're not there. Yeah, to... yeah, yeah. No, it's like uh, um, I I care about it, and uh, all my colleagues uh, we're all the same. I mean, it's like it's a professional ethic. It, it's not a BS thing. It's like real. Yeah. For sure. And, you know, uh, another thing I was really excited to talk to you about, uh, you ended up, you photographed Ansel Adams for the cover of Time magazine, who I believe you, you guys became friends. I was kind of curious, like how you met Ansel, Ansel and like this kind of your, your experience photographing him, I guess, is such an icon of photography. Yeah. And also <clears throat> one of the world's great people. Mm -hmm. And I met him because uh, I, I hired um, Ricardo Thomas as my first hire as a photographer of the White House, who was the first African-American photographer ever hired as a White House photographer. And by the way, I didn't do it for that reason. I liked his work. Yeah. And this is like 1974. I brought him on board out of uh, Detroit. And he was a good photographer, and he'd show me his stuff, and somebody had recommended him, and I needed another photographer to replace his left. Uh, um, and you know, it's so funny. Somebody just mentioned that to me the other day. So, well, you know, uh, you hired the first African-American photographer. I, I just honestly didn't think about it that way, and, yeah. which is what I would like to think is what we'd all think all the time. I mean, it's don't, but... Um, um, so Ansel, so Ricardo said, you know, you should really get, you should 
you should like get to know Ansel. He was a big fan of Ansel's. I wasn't that aware of Ansel. I mean, that was really out of my lane. Mm-hmm. And um, until I started looking at his pictures, obviously I go, oh my God. You know, and, and I, I must have known who he was, but it's not like today. I mean, he's well, more well known now than he was back then. Oh, he's, and, he's, uh, and so Ricardo um, introduced me to him and said, you know, you should get Ansel to come back to the White House. And it was up to Ricardo's one who made it happen, or at least got me to thinking about it. So I thought Ansel should meet the president of the United States and talk to him. And uh, he was, you know, Ansel was not only a great photographer, but a great environmentalist and particularly uh, like a like evangelical about the national park well, I think system. I, I, I could be wrong. I read his uh, biography back in college years ago, but I think he was one of the founders or with Sierra this, Club. Yeah, he was one of the founders, right? Like, yeah, which is incredible. Well, Ansel, remember, was born in the early 1900s. Yeah. So, I mean, he was old when I met yeah. him. But uh, he was, I'm trying to think, uh, let me just run the numbers on this. I, I, I think he was born in 08, right? He died uh, in 84, uh, the year, I was born in 84, and that's the year he died. Right, right. Uh, 84 and uh, 10, 84, right. So, I met him when I, like, my age now. Yeah, so he's or actually he was a year older than me. Yeah, you can see that he had this kind of energy too. By the way, I mean he he was not like moping around and uh, looking or feeling old, and uh, he had a hard thing. And uh, but anyway, I set up a meeting with him and the president of the United States in the Oval and I did a whole lot uh, because my archive is now at the Center for Creative Photography at the uh, University of Arizona. Yeah. And uh, uh, but the Center for Creative Photography was founded by Ansel Adams and John Schaefer, who was the president then, in 1975. And um, so every year now they have the Ansel Adams birthday lecture. I gave it a year ago, two years ago. But my whole lecture was about the relationship with President Ford and uh, Ansel Adams. I mean, I didn't even talk about Ansel's photography. I mean, everybody talks about it all the time and they know it, but I'll just tell you about the, the first meeting. So it was Bill Turnage and me and the president and Ansel and uh, Ansel sitting in the guest of honor chair and the president is next to him. No, actually the president insisted Ansel sit in his chair. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> there were these two chairs. You see the pictures all the time, you know? Yeah. And, it, so, so Ansel is essentially uh, starting to lecture President Ford about the park system and, well, you know, blah, 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 you know, like uh, this is really important. He goes, whoa, whoa, Ansel, the president, he says, stop. He said, I want you to know, he said, one of the greatest experiences of my life was being a park ranger at Yellowstone right, after, right out of college. So it would have been like 35, 36, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And I love the parks. He said, you don't have to convince me. And so Ansel says, well, we got through that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they had this terrific conversation. And, and Ansel was talking about one of the things. Uh, again, he was like, uh, like this pathological love of the parks mm-hmm. and all that. And he and Ford established, and I was like the go-between uh, with uh, – uh, 
he would send letters to Ford, very critical letters sometimes about cabinet officers and blah, blah, blah. I mean, he, wow. he was yeah, really interesting stuff. And I, those letters are all in the archive. And, and uh, um, But I would hand them off to the president. I mean, they never went through the system. And so, but President Ford, and, and I, I can't give you the exact numbers on what happened, but he, uh, because of Ansel, uh, proposed what would have been the biggest uh, infusion of money and adding land to the National Park Service since Teddy Roosevelt. And he wow. proposed the legislation in 1976 during the election year. And because of that, the Democrats shot it down. They thought it would make this uh, Republican look like uh, some kind of a savior of the yeah. park system, which it would have been. And the numbers are all there if you if you go back and look at that legislation. And Ford was truly pissed off about that. Uh, that was one of the times I've, I've never seen him so mad. He said, how can they not do this? Yeah. Said, this is for everybody. This is These are our land. This is not Republican, Democrat land. I mean, essentially saying the same thing. I mean, if you look at uh, the record of uh, Nixon, I mean, Nixon started the EPA and the Clean Water Act. I mean, they, they were not going around torching up the planet like uh, what we're seeing now where people are not addressing these problems. And uh, yeah. like, oh, I got an idea. Let's just give like a huge mining uh, uh, concession to uh, the industry in Alaska. Oh, that's a good. That's a good yeah. way to yeah, kind of straighten everything out. I mean, it was up I mean, to Trump. If it was up to Trump, he'd open a shopping mall in the Grand Canyon. You know what I mean? Like, but, I, but I'm like uh, an Oregonian. I was brought up loving the land, and and, uh, and it was just tragic lately watching a lot of it burn. You know, near where I grew up, uh, just south of there, actually. But at any rate. Ansel and he had a wonderful relationship. They got together later. Susan Ford went to the Ansel Adams workshop as Ansel's guest um, uh, with her Secret Service guys and all that. And uh, and Ford later, of course, he lost the election to Jimmy Carter. But one of the things that unfinished business for, oh, by the way, <clears throat> the day before Ford left office, he resubmitted the legislation. Oh, like, wow. Sort of an FU thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they still didn't do it. But he um, uh, he wrote a letter. He and Mrs. Ford co-wrote a letter after he was out of office to Carter recommending Ansel for the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom. And uh, Carter's uh, uh, gave it to him. Oh, wow. Interesting. Carter didn't have a White House photographer, I don't think. Well, uh, to put it in the words of Jody Powell, when he was asked that question, he said, we don't want another David Kennerly in the White House. <laughs> I can't blame him for that. <clears throat> they definitely were going to get me. No, that was for sure. Yeah. Um, a couple more questions. I'll let you go. Um, you know, one thing I was kind of curious about, like, how do you kind of view photojournalism these days with, it's a weird times like we were talking earlier with like the current president everything's a conspiracy it's all fake news yeah this, this term fake news i i never heard it until like a few years uh, ago <clears throat> that's fairly modern i think yeah it's and it's like you see it everywhere now i guess like how do you kind of view journalism and social media and everything going forward i guess is it like there's a by the way Highly recommend this movie called Social Dilemma. I oh, yeah, watched I it last night. Did you see it? 
Yeah, it's 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 uh, interesting and depressing all at the same time. Yeah, totally, totally <laughs> depressing, and it makes you just uh, delete all of your social media accounts uh, mm -hmm. uh, with, without even you know putting out a fond farewell. Yeah. You know, but um, uh, wow, I mean, the world is <clears throat> so different. I mean, I've adapted to it. Obviously, I have a Instagram account. I mean, I'm I don't. I mean, I like Instagram the best. I think if I only had one left, just because it's more photo oriented. Mm -hmm. um, but Facebook to me is like a little newspaper operation. It's like a small newspaper. And I have a public page, but my private page which is capped at like 5,000 people, which yeah. sounds like a lot, but it's really not uh, in this world. But I, I know almost everybody on it. I mean, I've paired away people like rude people who would say, crappy things which people are prone to do i just won't mm -hmm. put up with it i don't allow people to post pictures on my uh, site because i don't want people used to do it and say hey what do you think about this shot well it sucks anything else you know i mean <laughs> I, i'm exaggerating <laughs> but not totally but uh i just like controlling my own turf in that case it's not mm -hmm. a big deal but it it's a good form of expression for me um I take pictures so people see them. I mean, uh, uh, this is not a secret thing. I made a uh, decision a long time ago. People said, well, if you put your pictures on Facebook, the, the people run with them. And, you know, uh, legitimate people don't. And so, like a big company, they're real fastidious about running somebody's photo. Yeah. So you have to just decide... Or am I going to not worry about that or am I going to do it? I mean, so I just kind of made the decision that I have more fun with it, just putting stuff out there. Yeah. It's, it's under my terms. And uh, yeah, people steal stuff all the time, but you know, I don't care uh, unless it's somebody I can collect from and then I go after them. Yeah. No, it's just interesting. Should. I think it, you know, it's and just, I copyright it, everything I shoot. Yeah, and that just gives you and any photographer listening to this, uh, I recommend that you can do it online. Costs some money, but it really pays off in terms of uh, recovering damages uh, in a much bigger way if somebody violates your uh, your copyright. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the longer you do this, your archive becomes like a source of income. So it's like you might as well do the legwork and protect yourself. Well, I mean, in my archive, uh, which <clears throat> the CCP acquired, like it's like over a million objects, you know, with uh, negatives, transparencies, prints, uh, all like a, a world of credentials from all the stuff. It's really interesting stuff, old cameras, uh, on and on. But the main thing is that I held on to the copyright to my uh, uh, most of everything, not the Ford White House, uh, early days, uh, not so much from like UPI or, but I never, the last real job I had was the White House photographer. And uh, after that, I, uh, I generally own everything I've shot unless I made a buyout agreement with somebody. Yeah. And that really gave it great value because the kind of stuff I was shooting was a uh, very valuable uh, in terms of all that. Yeah, definitely. And um, I guess to wrap up, like you've been doing this a long time, David, like what, what do you think is kind of the key to your longevity in this business and what kind of keeps you excited, I guess? 
I have a curious mind and I'm, <laughs> you know, in many ways, but I've always wondered what was going on around the corner. And mm-hmm. um, that drives a lot of it. Um, caring about photographing uh, important events or just taking pictures around the block. You know, it's, it's the kind of thing that certainly I never get tired of. Um, as I said earlier, I, I've never lost my enthusiasm for photography and uh, not being a gadget guy, I don't wait for the new stuff to come out, but if something comes out that's superior, I get it. Yep. That's why I like the Canon gear. I, uh, they pay me to say that, but they couldn't pay me enough to say that if I didn't believe hey, it. Hey, Canon, reach out if you want to. If you want me to say that too. That's right. <laughs> I'm a Canon explorer of light, which is a. I always say that it felt like a Star Wars kind of logo that they don't have. <laughs> it's good. Man. It's like they they've been good. I've been doing working with them for since '95, really. And, wow. Uh, but really, I I use the camera gear that allows me to get what I want with the least fuss. Yeah. You know, therefore you've never seen me carrying a lot of cameras around because they get in the way. I mean, you can overburden yourself uh, that way. Mm-hmm. And I guess what's next for you? And obviously it's kind of a weird time being a photographer with COVID and everything going on, but anything you're kind of hoping to work on in the future, I guess, anything kind of on the docket or. What was that old song from the Bee Gees? Still alive. Yeah. <laughs> I'm working on that. Yeah. I've been on an airplane since February. This is the longest I've gone without being on an airplane in at least 50 plus years. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not stupid uh, about that. I, I, I survived like six or seven wars, whatever it's been. And just, uh, I, I thought I, it'd be one of those ironic endings for me. Like, Oh, yeah, he looked the wrong way in London when he crossed the street. <laughs> Boom! It was a big red bus, you know. It, yeah. uh, but uh, uh, no, I just, uh, it's my attitude. I have a good attitude. Yeah. Well, David, uh, we could have talked for another 10 hours because we didn't even get to half the stuff you shot, but it was a real pleasure talking to you, man. Like, big fan, everything you've done. So I can't thank you enough for taking the time, man. Thank you very much. This was fun. So there you have it. That was the David Hume Kinnerly interview. I just want to thank David so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, Just a truly incredible photographer who's just been at it for a long time and is continually shooting and has documented some of the most important moments in U.S. history and world history and just incredible work. So can't thank him enough. Uh, Definitely go check out David's website at kinnerly.com as well as his Instagram at David Hume Kinnerly. Uh, I'll put the links in the description, but definitely go check out more of his work. Just incredible stuff. And as always, I'll be having weekly podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as the Photo Banter YouTube page. So feel free to go check that out. Like, subscribe, and all that. Um, The support is much appreciated. And uh, as always, thanks so much for listening, and take care.